And it is so good to see all of you here. I don't know if you had to float in here because it is coming down out there, but I want you to know it is so good to be with you, to be able to worship the Lord and to pray, to enjoy fellowship and to study his word. And so if you want to find your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 13. If you are new here, my name is Grant Call. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and it is a delight to have you with us. We are going through the Gospel of Mark, and we are at Mark chapter 13. And for the last one and a half years, there has been a dramatic heightening of an awareness that we perhaps are living in the last days. There is an apocalyptic awareness, and it's been brought on by a lot of factors. Consider our world this last year and a half. We have gone through a worldwide pandemic, and it continues to have its effects. There's been a, a loss, a massive loss of life, and all sorts of livelihoods have been disturbed. Many have been ruined as this global pandemic continues to work its way. And then, of course, just think about different situations that are taking place in the world. We've got a country like Iran that has a stated policy of the annihilation of Israel. Furthermore, you've got massive military buildups, like in countries like China, with rising aggression. You've got Russia, who is experiencing once again and expressing military coercion. You've got Israel at conflict with Arab nations, and there's fighting, and there's growing tension. Peace seems to be so very elusive. In 2020, there was a massive locust plague that affected many countries in the Middle East and Africa. Many Americans were just kind of even unaware of it because we're so fixed on what's happening in our own country. But there led to a complete ruination of crops and all sorts of starvation. And then there's always the widespread killing of babies around the world that never really gets any attention. But it's murder on a wholesale scale. And then, of course, just think about our own country. Not only experienced just this chaotic election and all the fallout that's come with that, we have race relations that continue to deteriorate, not improve or build up. You've got large-scale fires. You've got a situation like in Texas where our energy grid goes down in the midst of sub-freezing temperatures, and it happens for an extended period of time. You've got a hijacking of one of our major oil pipelines. You've got regular riots in the streets. You have... um, a continual movement away from law and order. you got a cancel culture that is on a seek-and-destroy mission that if it doesn't fit the narrative or the culture of the age, we're going to eliminate you. And that has has to wonder, are we living in the end times? Where in the world is this world headed? That is why Mark chapter 13 is such an important chapter. And we're going to give our attention to it. It is a fascinating look at what Jesus tells us is going to be the future of the world. You need to know that the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the return of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see as we look here. So let's pick it up here, Mark chapter 13. I'm going to give you the setting beginning in verse 1. As he was going out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. If you're just joining us as we're making our way through the Gospel of Mark, let me just kind of bring you up to speed. Where we're at at present is Jesus has made his final entry into Jerusalem. It is the Passover week. He came in just really in an unprecedented way. 
riding on the foal of a donkey. You had thousands of people calling out, Hosanna, son of David. It's a messianic title. They're putting out palm branches and coats as he's walking, uh, he's riding along on the foal of a donkey, which was exactly how King David rode. He was representing himself as the promised Messiah. He then, after taking a look of all that was taking place at the temple, all how the corruption of the faith that God had given Israel, the next day he went and cleared it. He ran out the money changers. He flipped over their tables. This infuriated the Jewish leadership. They, through a series of trick questions, tried to trap Jesus so that Jesus could be handed over to the Romans as an insurrectionist. But in every one of those cases, Jesus demonstrated his absolute wisdom, presented the truth, truth about what they were asking, truth about who they were, and truth about who he is. This all culminated with Jesus then identifying as the son of David. He then commends a widow, a poor widow who brings in two leptas, two small, the smallest of Roman coins, and presents everything she has as an offering to God, an expression of total devotion. And Jesus says, you want to end up looking like this. It was after Jesus had condemned the leadership of Israel that he is walking out of the temple. That's what we see right there in Mark chapter 13. And notice his disciples, one of them said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And this is not hyperbole. I want you to know the temple in Jerusalem was absolutely spectacular. It was considered one of the marvels of the ancient world. It was superior to any temple throughout the Roman Empire. It began in B.C. 20 uh, with Herod the Great building this massive edifice, this temple, the temple that the Jews would use. It's the temple and all of its porticos and the various buildings were made out of glimmering white marble. It was on a massive foundation. The cornerstones and foundation stones were so large in this foundation, they were, some of them were the size of boxcars. All along that foundation, they had draped over shields of gold and silver. It glistened for miles in the distance. It was absolutely impressive. It was the pride of Israel. It was one of the feature pieces of the Roman Empire because there was no temple that had its parallel and Jesus says this, verse 2, And he said to them, him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now this temple was still actually being completed. I mean, it was mostly done. It was absolutely magnificent, massive in scope. And Jesus says, Not one stone will be left upon another. All of this is going to be torn down. And they're like, what? what? What What are you talking about? How would that even be possible? And so Jesus makes this prophecy. And about 40 years later, that's exactly what happened. In 66 AD, there was a nationalistic fervor in Israel that was so great. They despised Rome, their taxation, the domination, and they revolted. And that revolt lasted for four years. It culminated with the Roman armies being sent into Israel and taking over Jerusalem in a massive battle. 1,100,000 Jews lost their lives. The Roman general Titus that was overseeing this assault on Jerusalem had made uh, this statement that the temple 
was not to be burned. He was, his desire was to preserve it. But one of his soldiers set fire to the temple. And with that raging fire came the melting of all the gold that is found in this temple. And with, when Titus saw this, then he gave the command that the entire temple and all of Jerusalem be raised. With the melting of gold and the greed of all of these soldiers... They flipped and worked through all of those stones and totally destroyed the temple because they were after the gold because of their greed. And exactly what Jesus said happened about 40 years later. Now, verse 3, when they heard this statement that Jesus made, this prophecy, they came to him. They had some serious questions. Verse 3, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? When are these things going to happen? Now, Jesus had been speaking of his death and giving them details that he was going to be handed over, that he was going to be tried, that he was going to die, and that he was going to rise again. They were trying to wrap their mind around it, but the thinking of the people of Israel and including his apostles were there was one coming of Jesus of Messiah. This one Messiah would come and he would be a military victor. He would overthrow Rome and they thought that Jesus would be it. They had no idea that Jesus' coming would be two. There would be a first coming where he would come as a suffering servant, as the messianic perfect lamb of God that would pay the penalty for sins. And there would be then a return, he would ascend to heaven, and that he would recur, return as a conquering king. And between his first coming and his second coming would be this massive period of time, this church age, in which the gospel of the kingdom would go forth. They had no idea about this. So Jesus had a lot of teaching to do, and that's exactly what he's going to do. They're asking, when are these things going to happen? In a parallel account, like in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus, you find the statement in completion that they asked Jesus when they said, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming? End of the end of the age. We want to know what is going to happen in the end of the age. And you see that when they're asking, when is all of this going to be fulfilled, accomplished, the final consummation? And so Jesus is going to prepare his disciples for his return. How should Jesus' disciples live to be ready for his return? How are you and I to live to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ? Well, that's what you find in Mark chapter 13. And the first thing we're going to see is that you and I, we need to be clear on Christ's identity. Take a look, beginning in verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. Jesus says, see to it. Keep your eyes open. Don't let anyone deceive you. Many are going to say that I am the Christ. I am the one. And every time there are problems in the world, whether it be the rise of war or earthquakes, some sort of major problem, a pandemic, there are always some people that show up and eventually a few of them are going to say, I'm it. I'm the anointed one. 
I am a deliverer, a savior. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And he says, don't be alarmed and certainly don't be deceived. You need to have clarity as to the identity of who Christ is. And in every generation since Jesus' first coming, there have been those that have taken the place and said, I am the Messiah. You want some modern-day examples of that? Let me give you a couple. November 18th, 1978, 918 people took their own lives under the leadership of a cult leader by the name of Jim Jones. They did this in Jonestown, Guyana, in South America. This cult leader, Jim Jones, based in San Francisco, very involved in left-wing politics, very convincing, very persuasive, he called himself and considered himself to be the Messiah. So influential that he was that he actually was able to convince, and here's a picture of what that looked like, 918 of his followers to take their own lives drinking his special Kool-Aid. You want to get a little closer to home? April 19th, 1993, 74 people were killed in a fire in a compound north of Waco outside of a little community called Elk, Texas. A leader by the name, a name he gave himself, David Koresh. And I think we're all pretty familiar with this. David Koresh claimed to be the Messiah and had tremendous influence on the people who were part of his cult. I want you to know, just like Jesus says, we need to be clear on his identity. Jesus of Nazareth alone is the eternal son of God. He alone is the one who fulfilled all the prophecies of scripture, lived a perfect life, died as a perfect sacrifice, rose again. You want to look at the scriptures. There's only one that fulfills the prophecies given regarding the Messiah. So if you and I are going to be living ready for the return of Jesus, we've got to be clear on the identity of Christ. Second of all, we need to be confident in the midst of instability. Take a look what Jesus says, verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumor of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. He says, not only are you going to have false prophets, but you are going to have wars and rumors of wars and kingdoms coming after each other. Notice what Jesus says. He says, do not be frightened. I don't want you alarmed. I don't want you deceived. I don't want you to be caught unaware. But these things have always been around. Do you know why we do not need to be afraid? Because God is our strength. His word and his truth are our compass and our faith is in him. We're not dictated by circumstances. Our faith is firmly in Christ. And he refers to these things, these wars, famines, earthquakes. Guess what? These are just like birth pangs. And if you've read your Old Testament, birth pangs was what they referred to when it came to tribulation, difficulties, especially when it came to Israel before its deliverance, They were referred to as birth pangs, and that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. If we're going to be ready for Christ's return, we need to be confident in the midst of instability. 
But there is a third thing that Jesus points out. If you're going to be ready for his return, you've got to be committed in the face of adversity. Now, he's told his disciples what's going to happen in the world. Now he's going to tell them what's going to happen to his disciples personally. Take a look, verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you'll be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. He's saying, you need to know something. Following me may very well have some significant consequences in your life. And he talks about that you are going to be delivered to courts and you'll be flogged in the synagogue. So in every community where you had a Jewish population in the Roman Empire, you would have a synagogue. This is where the Jews came to meet. It was their place where they had all their civic events. This is where they came for worship. This is came, where they came for prayer, for the teaching of the, of the Torah, of the scriptures. This is also when they had court, when you had violations of the law. Those courts were held in the synagogue. If you were found guilty and you were to be punished, one of the punishments that could be doled out was a flogging. They would haul you out of the synagogue, tie your hands up to a post. You would receive 13 lashes across the chest, 26 on the back. It was always 39, not 40, because in Deuteronomy 25, verses 2 and 3, it said that you should never give a flogging past 40 lashes. So they wanted to make sure they steered clear of that, so it was always 39. Jesus says, you need to be confident in the midst uh, of the, when you're facing adversity. Committed, because these things are going to happen. And he noticed, he said, you're going to not only receive floggings, but you're going to stand before governors and kings, and you might want to underline it in verse 9, for my sake. This isn't happening because you're on the wrong side of politics or you're just kind of a troublemaker. No, these are genuine Christians who will not compromise on the gospel and they are willing to take the punishment if it means even flogging or going before kings and governors. But he says, these are the things that you could experience. And this is actually church history. Tertullian, an early church leader, said this, Quote, we multiply whenever we are mown down by you. Whenever the Romans would come and they would like crucify, belittle, uh, beat, uh, punish, torture Christians, throw them to animals, instead of quelling the cries of Christianity, it caused it to grow and blossom. It's the blood of the martyrs has always been the seed of the gospel. And what happens is just like seed, you put it in the ground and all of a sudden it produces more and more seed. That is how the gospel goes forth. In fact, Jesus says the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Whenever you find genuine Christianity, actual believers, people that are not just like looking for their best life now, but people who follow Jesus, love him, have believed the gospel, you always see the advancement of the gospel, the making of the disciples of all the nations, no matter what the hardships or the adversaries that they face, because Jesus is the only way. And this is how the gospel of the kingdom goes forth. And he says it's going to be preached to all the nations, and it is. The gospel continues to go out, especially now 
in unprecedented ways, even to the most remotest parts of the earth. And Jesus says, though, you need to get ready. There's going to be great adversaries in your wake. He says, verse 11, when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. He says, when they apprehend you, when they persecute you, don't worry about what you are about to say. You aren't going to say, hey, uh, give me a week and then I'm going to come back with a real answer. Uh, I'll, I'll respond to, you what you're, to your questions. God promises that his spirit will be at work in his people. And this is the story of church history. God's people, through the influence and power of his spirit, have answers, speak truth. They are uncompromised when it comes to the gospel and it's not their doing, it's the work of the Spirit. I mean, you look at just early church history. Look at the book of Acts. That's exactly what you find. When you've got Peter and John, and they're teaching the truth about the kingdom of God, they're teaching the scriptures, they're proclaiming the gospel, and that Jesus is the Messiah, the Sanhedrin gets a hold of them, and they're about ready to tear them apart. Peter and John have amazing confidence. You look at their response. Where does that come from? The Spirit of God. Or how about uh, when you get to Acts chapter 7, you got a guy by the name of Stephen. And they, are, they picked up stones and they want to kill this guy for his message about Christ. They've literally got him on the verge of the cliff. And Stephen gives this amazing story of walking through the entire Old Testament, showing and pointing how it focuses on Jesus the Messiah. And when he gets to the culmination, what do they do? They kill him. Where does he get that kind of poise? Where does he get the ability to say, God, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing? I'll tell you where. It's the Holy Spirit. You look at the Apostle Paul, drugged suddenly sometimes before governors and kings, and giving an amazing testimony of Christ and the gospel. Where does that come from? It comes from his Holy Spirit. But you need to be ready. There is going to be some significant adversity. Look what he says. Verse um, 12, brother will betray brother to death and a father is child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You are going to experience some personal hatred. Maybe you know a little bit about that. I can tell you that me being a Christian, not my family's favorite. But the... Hardships and challenges and the awkward moments that pales in comparison to brothers and sisters of mine who come from like Muslim countries and through just the amazing work of God and the power of the gospel, they believe in Christ or uh, people that come to Christ in hardline communist countries, they face significant hardship, beating loss of job, income, torn from their families, uh, incarcerated, and sometimes even the loss of their lives in horrific ways. We don't like to think about those things. We're going to be so focused on just what's keeping us happy now. But I want you to know these words of Jesus have a stark reality in the lives of believers around the world. And Jesus said, listen, 
Are you going to follow me? You need to get ready. This is going to call for a level of commitment. I'm not here just to make your life happier. I'm here to develop holiness. I am here for kingdom purposes. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 36, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. And watch how fast things can change. Look what Jesus says in verse 13. You will be hated by all because of, here it is, my name, your identity with me, my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Look how quickly the media or a government can turn against Christians. Look what's happening in our country, how rapidly Everything is changing. This is exactly what Jesus said is going to happen. But notice he said, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Is it that we somehow just have to work up some sort of endurance? No, and that's how we get saved? Actually, you enduring, persevering, that is a demonstration of the Holy Spirit. That is proof of the authentication of your faith. The same Spirit of God that seals you and marks you out and fills you with his life is the same Spirit that gives us strength to endure the hardships and the persecution. Your ability to be committed rests solely on the ability of the Spirit of God to work in the lives of his people. And the real cause for all of this Did you see it in verse 13? You might want to underline it. Because of my name. If you are truly a believer and you're going to identify with Jesus, you should expect that you will receive, possibly, treatment like he did. Have you noticed that, you know, people only have some of these, like, crazy belief systems, you know? And it's it's weird, like, where did you get that? They just kind of made it up, or it's the least flavor of the day. And people's like, eh, you know, okay, whatever. You know, believe whatever you want to believe. That is, until you start talking about Jesus Christ, him being the only way, and talking about the gospel. All of a sudden, that's it. Uh-uh. We're drawn the line here. You want to believe just whatever? That's fine. But not Jesus Christ and his exclusivity. Not the gospel. We will not have it. You start mentioning Christ and the gospel, and pretty soon, hatred is going to show up. You and I, we need to be ready for his return. That means that we need to be clear on Christ's identity. We need to be convinced and confident of, in the midst of instability. We need to be committed in the face of adversity. And finally, beginning in verse 14, we need to be convinced of the future reality. What we're about to look at here in verse 14, you need to understand a little bit about the interpretive framework of prophecy. Prophecies that are given uh, oftentimes have a near fulfillment and a future full fulfillment, and with oftentimes a large gap in between. Not with all prophecies, but you see this, that sometimes there'd be a prophecy given, there'd be a fulfillment, and there could be a gap of a hundred years, even thousands of years, and there would be a full fulfillment. 
That is the nature of prophecy. So it's kind of like if you're hiking, and before you climb up a mountain, you take a look, and you notice these mountain peaks, and there's some in front of you, and there's some right behind the mountains there, and they look like, wow, they're just kind of touching, you know? But you climb up to the top of the mountain, and you look like, whoa! Well, from down below, it looked like these two mountains were almost touching, when in fact, you find out there's this massive valley in between them. That's what biblical prophecy looks like. There's a near fulfillment, and there is a future fulfillment. And there may be a large gap. That is certainly the case when it comes to the end times. We are going to look at what Jesus highlights is a central key event that will be absolutely unmistakable so that you will know that the end is just about here. So just to give you a little bit of understanding and context for this. Now, I want you to know there's a variety of different views on Mark 13 and a variety of views on eschatology. But I want to just give you, from my years of study, I want you to give, give to you my understanding. And a lot of scholars hold this position. What is going to happen is, as you look at the book of Daniel, you have 69 weeks of years. And we can chart that and find that that 69 weeks of years ends with Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And according to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, there is going to be a gap between the 69th week of years and the 70th week. That gap is the church age. It's the time between Christ's first coming and at the end of that 70th week is his second coming. It's where the gospel goes not only to Jews, but to the Gentiles. But there is going to be the beginning, this picking back up of this 70th week. It'll begin with Jesus actually coming and taking away all those who truly have faith in him, an event referred to as the rapture. You find this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 9, where they are going to be caught up together with Christ. This will begin a seven-year period of judgment. There is going to be a central figure that is going to feature very strongly in this seven-year period. He is, as referred to in the book of Revelation, called the Antichrist. But he is going to come across as kind of like the world deliverer. He is going to show special favor to Israel, in fact, become their protector. And he is going to at least show tolerance, if not full-out acceptance, for Christians. And for three and a half years... Although judgment, God is going to start bringing judgment upon the earth, he is going to look at like this marvelous deliverer. But in the midpoint, there is going to be a significant change, an unmistakable event that no one will be able to to miss, and that's what Jesus is calling for in verse 14. Take a look. But when you see the abomination of desolation, Standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. When you see the abomination of desolation, now what's that? That is a term that is found in the book of Daniel. You find it in Daniel chapter 9, verse uh, 27. You also have it in uh, uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. It is the abomination that leads to desolation. There is going to be this coming event. Now, the Jews had a precursor to this. They had an event in their history that they even referred to as the abomination of desolation because it was so horrific. 
And it, the event, and perhaps you've heard of it, uh, it took place um, in B.C. 167 with a guy by the name of Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, what Antiochus Epiphanes did, he was in 167 B.C., he went and took over Jerusalem, took over the temple, and this Syrian king did what was absolutely unthinkable. He sacrificed pigs at the temple dedicated to Yahweh right there in Jerusalem. And he poured out their blood, the blood of these pigs. And furthermore, to desecrate the temple, he put up an altar and a shrine to Zeus in the temple. This was so abhorrent to the Jews. They fled from the temple. It was the abomination that led to the desolation they just literally cleared out. And so this, though, this event was merely a foreshadowing of a future event, that future event of the ultimate abomination of desolation. Now, some people think like, well, you know, in uh, AD 70, when Titus came in with the Romans and they cleared house with all of Israel, that was the abomination of desolation. But the Apostle Paul still saw a future fulfillment of this. You can read about it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Of one, a future ruler, who is going to be, just like Jesus says, will set himself up where he should not be, in the temple, the holy place, and he will set himself up to be worshipped as God. The Apostle John, writing in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, speak of this exact same thing, this Antichrist who will rise to power. And notice what Jesus said in verse 14, let the reader understand. Not the hearers, not you, the disciples that were right there with him. This is for a future people so that they will not miss what is taking place, this central event, this abomination of desolation. And so when this takes place, He says, when you see this, this one who turns on the Jews and starts persecuting them and churns on Christians and seeks their death, Jesus says, you need to respond in radical form. Verse 15, the one who is on the housetop, uh, he must not go down or go, go to get anything out of his house. What are they to do? They're to flee to the mountains, verse 14. Verse 16, and the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, carrying a child, whether on your back, in your arms, or in your womb, will be extremely dangerous. Could even speak of the fact that these infants are going to be slashed with the swords. He says, and then furthermore, verse 18, but pray that it may not happen in the winter. Why? Because when this desolation takes place and this evil Antichrist goes unleashed in the winter, those dry riverbeds fill up with water and they become unpassable. Pray that this doesn't happen in the winter. And then furthermore, he goes on to say in verse 19, he says, For those days will be a time of tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Who's the creator? God. And there is never, despite all the horrific things that this world has seen 
ever been a tribulation like the one that is about to come. And he goes on to say in verse 20, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. You see, even in the midst of God's wrath, God demonstrates mercy. And he says, you know, if these days weren't shortened to that final three and a half year period that Daniel speaks of, all of humanity would be wiped out. But he says, but he did it for the sake of the elect, for those who are chosen. Well, who are these people? Well, the elect are those who God is calling to faith in Christ and brings them to salvation during that tribulation period. And the elect is the chosen among Israel. And God says, because of them, there was a limit. And he says, that's why these days were shortened, but get ready. He says, there's going to be widespread deception that's going to take place in this final, in this final tribulation. Look at verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, behold... Here is the Christ, or behold, here he is there. Do not believe them. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. He says, you know what? This is going to be marked out with false Christ saying, he, I'm it, or the, the real Messiah, he's over there. He says, don't believe any of it. And you're like, well, what, what would that even look like? Well, let me uh, give you a modern-day example of that right here in good old USA. March 23, 2004, while members of Congress looked on, the Reverend Sun Young Moon declared himself to be the Messiah. And this took place actually at the Washington's Dirksen Senate building, okay, right there in our nation's capital. They had all these different legislators, people among uh, senators and congressional members gathering at the Senate building for what was said to be a peace awards banquet. And to what they were doing was to honor the son, Reverend Sun Myung Moon and his wife. You've ever heard of the Moonies? Remember them? They have these massive weddings. This is the guy. He is the founder of the Unification Church. He was, at that time, when he was 83 years old, also the owner of the Washington Times newspaper and the United Press International Wire Service. While congressional leaders met for this dinner, and then some of them were trying to make sense of what was taking place. But here's pictures of it, what was actually happening. They placed an ornamental golden crowns on the heads of Reverend Moon and his wife. The New York Times summarized Moon's speech after being crowned, and listen to this. Quote, Emperors, kings, and presidents had declared to all heaven and earth that Reverend Sun Myung Moon is none other than humanity's savior, Messiah, returning Lord, and true parent. This wasn't just like a one-time deal. This is the same guy that believed that Handel's Messiah was written for him. These are the sort of things that are going to happen at the end of that tribulation, just like Jesus said. But he says, verse 23, but take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. Everything you need to know, I've told you in advance. And when it just all looks as if there's 
it's all coming undone and there is no hope, then you have the return of Jesus. Take a look at it. We're going to look at it closer next week, but look at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. There's going to be all of the celestial phenomena. And this is referencing various Old Testament passages that are highlighting what the return of Jesus is going to look like. And then there it is, verse 26. Then they will see the Son of Man. The title that Jesus took upon himself to speak of his humility, the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. These aren't like clouds that we see. This is the Shekinah glory like Daniel 7 verse 13 speaks of. This is they will see Jesus as he is, coming in the clouds with power. And notice what he says in verse 27. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Then Jesus is going to send forth his angels and they will gather his people. Here you're going to have like the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. You're going to have all of those who came to Christ through their testimony, those who came to Christ through the angelic proclamation of the gospel. You're going to have tribulation saints. You're going to have all of the Old Testament saints. They're already with the Lord in spirit. Their bodies, they're going to, there's going to be some sort of massive gathering through these angels all put together. These same angels are going to gather those who refused to believe and rejected Jesus and gather them for judgment. And so we see this all taking place, this great culmination. And as you read the book of Revelation, you're going to find that what happens when the coming of Christ in Revelation chapter 19, that the Antichrist is thrown in the lake of fire, Satan is bound. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 7, you're going to find the thousand-year reign of Christ. The promises made to Israel are going to have an absolute, complete fulfillment. After that thousand-year reign, Satan will be loosed, one final battle, and then the eternal state comes. And Jesus says, I want you to be ready for my return. You see, we're ready for Christ's return when we are living out what he has revealed. And so I'd like to just ask you, are you ready for his return? I read of a pilot in the Air Force named Robbie Robbins. Uh, He fought during the first Iraq war. In fact, after his 300th mission at the end of the first Iraq war, uh, he got a surprise. They said, you and your crew, you can head back to the States. (laughs) They were overwhelmed and overjoyed. It was They weren't expecting it, but after their 300th mission, they got to fly back across the Atlantic, landed in Massachusetts. Uh, They didn't inform any of their families that they were coming. They wanted it to be a big surprise, just like it was for them. They got into a vehicle, and uh, they had the long drive. They drove all night uh, to drop Robbie Robbins off at his home. He got there just as the sun was just starting to come up. And uh, as he was making his way to his house, he he saw that they had a banner out. It says, welcome home, daddy. And he's like, he hadn't told them. So he comes, he goes to the front door, knocks, and uh, he gets let in by one of the kids. The kids are kind of half-dressed, getting ready for school. Like, daddy's home! They couldn't believe it. And they were so excited, but 
his wife comes down the stairs and she's all dressed up. She's got makeup on, hair done, wearing a dress, looking awesome. And he's like, how did you know? And she was crying with tears of joy. And she said this, we didn't know when you're coming, but we knew at the end of the war that you would come back and that you would try to surprise us. And so, honey, we wanted to be ready every day. Friends, that's how we are to live. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We do know what he's clearly told us in his word. We're to be ready every day. And Mark 13 tells us exactly what that looks like. We are ready for Christ's return when we are living out what he has revealed. Let's pray. Lord,